All right, good morning. We are, well, last week we kind of introduced the series on spiritual discipline, be equipped, right? Ephesians 4, leadership of the church has been given to the church to equip you all to do the work in the ministry. So that's the, the drive of this series. We want to look at spiritual disciplines and we want to look at the theology behind them, but then also the practicality of applying them, uh, the, the why and the how, if you will, as, as Mario said in a couple weeks ago in one of the videos. Um, Remember, a couple key lessons, key, key lessons in, in order to really understand this series. The disciplines are not God. The disciplines are not the end goal themselves. We don't engage with them out of obligation, out of fear, out of anything other than a deep, abiding, transforming love for Jesus and a desire to obey him and to be more like him. That, that's where this all has to begin. And so this week, um, we are going to be looking at Scripture. I said last week that it all has got to begin with Scripture. I saw a Matthew Henry quote recently, and he said, Any church that is not dependent on and sustained by Scripture is automatically suspect. And so we're going to begin with the discipline of Scripture in our lives, because that's where it has to start. So please join me in prayer. Lord, we need you. I need you. I so desperately need you. Right now, this morning, as I stand up here, I am painfully aware of my own inadequacies. And I am humbled by the reality that it's never once been about me. And I'm so grateful for that. So, Lord, make this about Jesus. It's only through his power that any of this matters and has a chance of having impact. Our words are dead. Your word is alive. Our words are dull. Your word is sharp. As John the Baptist said, we must decrease. Jesus must increase. So may that be true in this time. We come before you in worship, humbly offering ourselves, offering our minds, offering our ears, offering our hearts. Open our ears, soften our hearts. Teach us as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, question for you. Hypothetical. Dust off the imagination. How many of you would be content with one meal a week? You think you'd fare well? How, how do you think you would do physically if you only ate once a week? How do you think you would fare mentally, emotionally? I mean, hangry is now officially in the dictionary because society so immediately accepts, yeah, if I don't eat, I'm not a happy person to be around. So if we only ate once a week, it's not going to go well. All right, all right, what if you ate daily, but just like a bite? Like once a day, you just grabbed four or five peanuts and chewed them, you know, on your way to the car. You had half a banana on Tuesday, you know, you ate one cookie on what, like you ate daily, but it was just one quick bite. What's the fastest way I can ingest food so as not to disrupt the schedule of my day? You think you're going to fare any better? So why in the world do we take that approach with God's word? Are we starving ourselves? I mean, is the church in the state that it's in, the American church, where none is the fastest growing demographic, people who want no religious affiliation, we're, we've shared the stats of evangelicals who say things like, I'm not sure Jesus is the only way to heaven. I don't know if the Bible's trust. I mean, the American church, we're, we're not in a great place. But that's if you use human standards. 
I think we are in a fantastic place for God to do a transformative work that only He can do. And I think it has to begin with His Word. Because if we freely admit, yeah, there's not a chance I'm only going to eat once a week. I don't even want to eat just once a day. What's God say about His Word? Job 23, 12, I have not departed from the commandment of His lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my portion of food. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy, But He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen? Amen. We say we agree with it. Do our lives reflect that we agree with it? Verbally, I have no problem verbally saying, yeah, God's word is just as vital in my life as physical nourishment. Does my behavior back that up? Do I actually live this out? And I think part of it stems from the fact that, I, and I, guys, I'm as guilty of this as anyone, but I think at times we forget just what scripture is. We're like, well, it's just a book. I could go out and I could buy a dozen copies of this, right? So it sits on my shelf. I pull it off on Sunday morning. Like, no. This is God's word. I mean, it, it, it's crazy to me how many times in my own life, and maybe if you're like me, you've said this sentence, I just want to hear from God. Well, if I could only hear from God, I just, I just need to hear from God. Okay, well, let's start with God's words. Right? I mean, like, I just want to hear from Joe. Well, he left a voicemail for you. Did you listen to it? No, I'm just waiting to hear from him. Well, he also wrote you a letter. Did you open it to read it? No, because you see, I'm waiting to hear from Joe. I, I, Sam, are you kidding me? Like, how can I be so thick-headed at times? This is what Scripture says, 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we feel incomplete, is it because the Word of God is not a core part of our lives? Scripture was breathed out by God that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. I feel incomplete. I feel like I'm not equipped for my job, for my calling. I feel like I'm not equipped for impact. What's the role of Scripture in your life? I think that will go a long way towards answering that question. So if we don't begin with a proper understanding that this is not just some book, this is the Word of God breathed out for us, how can we not desire it above all else? I mean, it's like I said at the beginning, I'm going to keep saying it throughout this series, this has to happen from a place of love for Jesus. This is not, I'm going to read my Bible so that Sam gets off my back. I'm going to read my Bible. I mean, how many of you have the elders shown up at your door and said, hey, I'm here because Sam told me to stop by and make sure, did you read your Bible for 10 minutes today? No, we don't do that. I don't know what your daily habits are like. It'd be impossible to check in with every single one of you every minute of the day. Hey, have you read the Bible in the last hour? This can't be done from a place of obligation or guilt or fear Right? God's just waiting to get me. No, this has to be driven by a deep love for our Savior, a desire to know His heart, 
a desire to be like him, a desire to spend time with him, to know his voice. What does he say in John? He says, my sheep know my voice. This is the voice of God. It has to come from a place of love. And I told you last week, you guys know I have no problem getting specific and naming names up here. And we're going to do that this series. Because I think there are people in this body, praise God, that he has placed here who have given us beautiful demonstrations of this discipline. And I have no problem holding them up and saying, let's celebrate this person, the example they set. Because I think that Paul does that. Paul does that regularly. And so we're going to do that. And we got a great demonstration of this. He doesn't know we're about to, I'm about to tell this story. Jim Prosser, my man, last summer, don't put your head down. This is an awesome moment. This is a highlight. I'm, Jim, I'm, I'm serious, man. I want you to hear me say this. This was a highlight of the year for me last year, the heart that you demonstrated last July. Last July, we were reading through the book of Joshua, and I came in, you know, I'm here early Sunday mornings, the worship team is here, and Jim comes in in the back, normally, earlier than he normally gets here, and I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? What are you, you know, what are you doing here earlier? And he said, I'm really enjoying reading through Joshua. Like, I'm really enjoying my time with Joshua, and I missed it this week. Life got busy, life got distracting, as happens, and I missed my time with the Word of God this week. So I wanted to come in early when I wouldn't be distracted and get that time back. That's discipline. That is what it requires. Jim wasn't doing it because Mike showed up at my house and yelled at me, it's July 17th, where are you in the reading plan? No. Jim said, I am enjoying this. And I missed it this week, so I am willing to change my behavior. I am willing to rearrange my time so that I can get that time with God's Word. It was, it was awesome. Guys, be like that. That's the discipline of Scripture, driven by desire, a willingness to do something about it and not just say we're going to. It's incredible. What he also demonstrated in that, and what we have to understand, is that it's not just reading to get it over with. It's not just I'm going to fly through this so I can check something off in my calendar. Don't turn this into a task list. Take time with it. Know it. Study it. Ezra 7, 8 through 10. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the first month, he came to Jerusalem. Listen to this. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He had set his heart on this. Ezra wasn't operating out of obligation. He wasn't operating out of resignation. Fine, I guess I have to. No, he had set his heart on God's word. Psalm 119, 15 through 16. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. We sang a moment ago, Lord, I delight in you. Do we delight in his word? I told you that we'd share specific people as positive examples. Last week I also said, and I'm not going to share names because I'm not trying to throw people under the bus, but Paul also calls out specific behavior in different churches in his letters to them. I told you in this series, I'm going to also quote your own words back to you. And we're going to take an honest look at ourselves as a body. I delight in your statutes. 
Here are reasons. Hey, how you doing? You know, talk to me. Oh, I've got this question. Okay, what scripture? Well, you know, I, I've been really busy. I just don't have time for it. Well, you know, I work hard, then I come home and I help put the kids to bed, and then I just need to do something that I enjoy in the evenings. Those are quotes from you all. I, I just don't have time for scripture. I'd rather do something that I enjoy. What's the implication there? It, time in scripture is not enjoyable. Let me do something fun. Let me turn on ESPN. Church, do we delight in the word of God? I mean, this is a joy to us. If it's not, okay, then that's a great place to begin. Be honest. God, I don't delight in your word. Would you give me a heart that finds joy in your word? Don't feel ashamed if you've said those excuses. Recognize it as an opportunity to specifically repent and transform your behavior, to transform your prayer life. Lord, I confess that I don't care enough about your word to make it a priority. Forgive me of this. Give me a heart that craves your word. Because as we're going to look at, God is abundantly clear on the place that Scripture should have in our lives. So we need to start being honest. Remember last week when I said, you got to start using the phrase, I can't find time truthfully? It's not I couldn't get away, it's I chose not to. It's not I can't do these things, I chose not to. So if you're someone, this is going to be very painful. If you are someone who says things like, I just don't have time for scripture, I want you to start saying this sentence instead. Lord, I know what you say that your word should be in my life. I've heard it. I accept it. But it's not my preferred choice of how to spend my time. So God, I am choosing to not pay attention to your commands. Start saying that and see if your attitude about Scripture doesn't change. If we would just start being honest with ourselves and honest with the Lord and asking Him to transform us. Do we delight in the law of the Lord or are we trying to read it just to say we read it, just to get through with it, just to get done with it and move on to what we really like to do? Do I delight in the statutes of God? Acts 17, 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. And there the word, it's lowercase. It's talking about teaching of the apostles. So what it's saying is you've got a group of believers. You have two groups of believers. You have the Berean believers and the Thessalonica believers. And each of them received teaching from the leaders of the early church. The Berean believers were more noble because they received the teaching with all eagerness. I'm not saying discount listen to podcasts. Don't, don't stop listening to pastors. Don't stop, right? Like, I'm not saying no. He says it's a good thing. They listen to the leaders. They listen to the speakers with eagerness. But then what did they do that made them more noble? Examining it, the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They listened to their leaders. They listened to their teachers. And they said, okay, now I'm going to go back to scripture. And I'm going to make sure that's what God's word says. How many of you have memorized Ezra chapter 7? So do you know that Ezra 7, 8 through 10 really says what I said it says? When was the last time you fact-checked me? Now, hopefully I've demonstrated a trustworthiness. Hopefully your leaders and your pastors and the, the people you listen to, the people you watch on television, right? like, find people who are trustworthy, but if you're not examining scriptures, you won't know if they're trustworthy. 
I mean, really, take a picture of this slide. Go read Ezra 7, 8 through 10. Make sure it says what I said it says. Examine scriptures daily. Know what God's word says. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's a line, I think it's a Newsboys song. And it says, we know a line is crooked because we know it's straight. And they didn't come up with it, right? Like, I've heard that saying dozens of times. That's the truth. We know what's crooked because we know what straight is. One of the most common questions I'm asked as a pastor is, how do you recognize false teaching? How do you recognize bad teaching? How do you recognize... I mean, people ask this constantly. Pastor Mario and I were just in Mansfield Christian for the whole week, talking to the students every day. And we had multiple kids ask me, okay, how do I recognize bad teaching? Because you know what the truth is. We don't have time to sit down and identify every false teaching out there. We don't have time to identify every small lie, every way that individual Bible verses are twisted and taken out of context. Know what the truth is. Know what God says. So that if you hear something that is contradictory to it, the red flag immediately goes up and wait, 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 wait a minute. Jesus is not the only way to heaven. Okay, Jesus himself said otherwise. I know a lie because I recognize the truth. Study it. Spend time in it. Devote ourselves to it. Treasure it. Delight in it. Meditate on it. And not empty your mind and chant mantras, but spend time studying it and knowing it and eternalizing it. Why don't we do these things? I have a theory, as it's been true in my own life at times. Again, maybe if you're like me, this has been true in your own life. But I have a theory as to why we resist time in Scripture. Because most believers would readily, if I asked you, put your hand up if you agree with all those verses that we just read. Every way that God describes His Word as profitable. I mean, the Word of God is profitable for all things. Believer, do you agree with that? Yep. The Word of God is beautiful. It's a delight. Do you agree with that? Yep, yep. Okay, so if we say we believe these things to be true, why do we then resist time with God's Word? Why do we resist engaging with what He has said? I think Scripture also provides the answer to that. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, listen to this last phrase, the word of God, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Is it possible we don't engage with God's word because we don't feel like being pierced? Is it possible that we don't engage with God's word because we don't want to be cut down to the soul and spirit? I don't want him to discern my thoughts and heart, so I'll just stay away from the thing that does so. Why do I say that that's my theory? Because God's people have demonstrated that sadly this is part of our history. Zechariah 7.12, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. People made their hearts hard for the explicit purpose of not hearing God's word. Because we don't want to be cut. How dare you insinuate that there's something in my life that needs to be cut out and removed? No, no, that's for those other people, those sinners. I'm doing great. I don't have anything that I need to change. I don't have anything that I need to do differently. 
So I'm just going to stay in those familiar passages that make me feel good and take them out of context. I'm going to resist engaging with the Word of God because I don't want to be cut to the bone. We've got to ask ourselves, if there is a real reluctance in our own lives to engage with the Word of God, I mean, if you're sitting there and you're feeling that conviction that God's Word does not have a place in your life like it should, I want you to ask yourself a very real and painful question. Is it because I don't want God to cut to my heart? I don't want Him to do any work like that. So I'm just going to keep it at arm's length, and then I can go about in my set behavior and not have to change. This is what God's Word is. This is what it's meant to do. Do we not engage with it because we don't want it to do that? Because that's the thing. When we engage with God's Word, you've got a choice to make. You either apply it or you don't. James 1.22, one of my absolute favorite verses because it knocks me to my knees every single time. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Maybe a more modern translation, maybe your translation will say, do not merely listen to the word and so lie to yourself, but do what it says. See, when we engage with God's word, if we're engaging with it honestly and truthfully like we're supposed to, then we're opening ourselves up to change. And if we're unwilling to change, then we have to acknowledge we're in disobedience. God says, be merciful. Yeah, but what about the people who have wronged me? Great question. Jesus spoke about that. Turn the other cheek. If he makes you go one mile, go two. He asked for your cloak, give him your tunic as well. How many times should I forgive someone? Stop counting and just forgive them. Ugh. Not ready to do that. So now I'm either admitting that I'm in disobedience to God's word, or it's easier if I just don't engage with it. It's not just about engaging with it. It's not just about reading it to get it done. It's about spending time with it, delighting in it, knowing it. And then it's not just about knowing it. It's about doing it. It's about living it out. It's about applying it. I know CPR. I was in a restaurant the other night. Somebody started choking. Addie was like, hey, you know CPR. Get over there. No, I'm just really more comfortable if other people use CPR. My CPR knowledge is for me. It makes me feel special. It's just, it's more of a personal thing. Why'd you go to CPR class? To apply it, to use it, to be transformed by it. Not easy, worth it. A joy. Why? Because it makes us holier. As we conform to it, we are being molded to look more and more like Jesus. What did we look at last week? God's will for your life, your sanctification. That fancy theological word for your holiness. You're growing to look more like Jesus. So if God's word is going to be part of that, then I need to show up ready to submit to it, not expecting it to conform and make me feel safe and comfortable right where I am. So when do we apply it? Always. I mean, like, literally always. And that's part of the discipline of Scripture. As we talk about this idea, this theology of the discipline of Scripture, part of being disciplined in Scripture is being able to pull it out and use it every day, every moment, and knowing how to use it. 
That's part of the discipline of a situation that presents itself in my life, and I have trained myself. Remember, we looked at training last week, training yourself for godliness. A situation comes, and I have trained myself as to how to respond. If you ever listen to football players or basketball, if you listen to athletes give interviews, what do they stress? Film prep, right? Peyton Manning, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, spent more hours in the film room than anybody. And he says things like, well, I looked good because when the other team lined up in this scheme, I knew exactly what they were going to do, and I knew where to go, and I knew how to respond to this situation. That's discipline. That's the discipline of Scripture. Okay, bad situation pops up in life. I know how to respond. Hard situation pops up. Yep, I know how to respond. I go to Scripture. I go to God's Word. I mean, listen, these are just a few examples of what I'm talking about. Anybody ever been tempted? Really? We've got that many perfect people in this church? we got to start there then, maybe. Okay, so for the 10% of you who have struggled with sin in your life, and for the 90% of you who are lying or feel awkward about raising your hands, under attack by the enemy, go to Scripture. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You've been given a divine weapon with the power to destroy enemy strongholds. Ephesians 6, verse 10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who you're fighting on a day-to-day basis. You better arm up, gear up. How? Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He wrote this to a group of people who only knew military as using swords. Hey, Roman soldier, why'd the battle go terribly for you? Oh, I left the sword back at the camp. I thought I'd go fight with just my fists. All right, dummy. That's why the battle didn't go well for you. Sam, dummy, are you trying to fight these cosmic forces of evil without the sword? Being attacked by the enemy? Go to Scripture. All right, anybody ever felt like life is overwhelming? This moment's too heavy. There's no hope. There's no light. There's no chance of this getting better. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I can't take the weight of this anymore. Discipline yourself. Go to Scripture. Romans 15.4 For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You want to be encouraged? Your first stop should be God's Word. You're not going to find it on Instagram. You're not going to find it in texting your buddies unless your buddies are texting you back Scripture. Go to God's Word. One of the best things you can do is if you struggle with something, if something depresses you, if something gets you down, if something weighs on you, if something grieves you, find the verse that deals with that and memorize it so that when that situation pops up, I've watched game film, I'm disciplined, I can respond with the Word of God. 
looking for guidance and direction? Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Spend time with it, delight in it, apply it. What's the result? Then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Ooh, pay raise at work. Nope. That's not biblical prosperity. That's not biblical good success. Biblical good success, true good success. Do not allow that verse to be twisted as so many try to. Biblical true good success is walking in the way of the Lord. How do we get there? By knowing and applying scripture. And now we get to the heavy ones. Honestly, I started with the lighter stuff. Are you kidding me? Yeah, we started with the lighter stuff. You know what drives my desire for scripture? Because I'm painfully aware of how unholy I am. Do you feel a burden to pursue holiness in your life? John 17, 17, Jesus speaking, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Are you pursuing holiness? You can't do so apart from God's word. You want to know Jesus more? How do I love Jesus more? How do I know Jesus more? That's the drive of my heart, is fellowship with Jesus. Luke 24, 45, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You want to know Jesus more? Spend time listening to Him. Get to know His heart. Hear His voice as He speaks to us. There's not a situation in your life in which Scripture is not going to be relevant. And don't treat it like an encyclopedia. Well, my coworker did this to me, and so they got a raise instead of me. Oh, turn to page 730, and this is how I file a complaint with HR. No, that's not how the Bible works. My neighbor did that, right? Like, this is the pain I'm feeling. My son told me he doesn't want to have a relationship with me anymore. It's not Google. You don't just, it's not WebMD. Type in your specific symptoms and it diagnoses you. You got to know it. You have to know it in its entirety. You have to see the threads woven throughout it. We have to take this seriously in our lives and discipline ourselves to respond in every situation by returning to the truth of God's word. That's the theology. I really, I can't make it any clearer than that. God's word lays out how important this should be in our life. And I realize that for some people it's intimidating. It's new. Maybe you're honest and you're like, I haven't done this for the first 70 years of my life. 71, I'm going to start now. I'm 16, I'm going to start now. So now I just want to look at some practical ideas. Because I think part of it is being equipped and learning, right? If you're new, we want to make sure we're helping you. So this is a picture of my Bible. And you can see a bunch of different colors. You can see scribbles in there. And so if I'm sitting down to study scripture, if you're new to the idea of studying scripture, grab a pen, grab some highlighters, grab a reference book, a study guide. And what I do is I'm starting a book as I open my reference books. And I look, okay, when was this written? To whom was it written? What was going on culturally? What are the themes of this book? And I'll make notes at the start of each chapter. And then I assign each highlighter a different color. Why? Because this helps me. This helps me when I go to Scripture. Blue is my favorite color. So God gets blue. Anything in Scripture that is a statement about the person or the promises of God gets highlighted in blue. So why? So that when life gets hard and feels overwhelming, 
and I need that encouragement from Scripture, like Romans 15, 4 says, I can turn, oh, there's blue. Oh, that's what God says. That's right. Okay, cool. Green, traffic light, go. Go ahead and do this. Anything in green is a statement that must be true about my life. Be merciful. Green, go ahead and do this, Sam. Red, pink, traffic light, stop, don't do this. Any behavior that needs to humble me, ooh, don't do that. Orange is thematic. Yellow is court right. Like, this is my own system. But I'm saying, take advantage of the tools at your disposal. Come up with a way so that as you study, you can retain and you can recognize. So as you flip through, you can see blue, promise of God, blue, promise of God, blue, purpose of God, person of God. Wow, that's a really easy, quick picture of who God is in the hard moments of life. Use reference guides. We're going to do an exercise right now. I expect 100% commitment. I'm going to go first to demonstrate that I'm dead serious about this. And you're gonna repeat after me. My name is Sam, I do not know everything. There is no shame in admitting that. There is no shame in asking for help. 100% true about me. All right, you ready? My name is? No, your name is not Sam. <laughs> okay, let me be a little more clear on this. I am definitely not meant to be an elementary school teacher. You are now, Oh boy, we got work to do. You are now going to say my name is, and then you are going to insert your own name. So we'll do it together. My name is Sam. I do not know everything. There is no shame in admitting that. There is no shame in asking for help. Believe that, internalize that, because if you are incapable of admitting that you do not know everything, if you are incapable of asking for help, you are setting yourselves up for misery. I can't tell you, I, I don't know if I can say 100%, but I'm going to say high 90s percent of the conversations I have with people about theology questions or about I'm struggling with this sin, I'm going to say a high 90s percent of my conversations begin with, this is really embarrassing to admit. I'm ashamed to say I don't know the answer. I'm probably the only one who doesn't know this. I, you probably have never been asked this before. <laughs> you guys are wrong every single time. If we would just be honest with what we're struggling with, what we're doubting, the questions we're having, we would be amazed to find how many people are right there with us. And then instead of holding each other at arm's length, we could actually come together and pursue it to together, right? So here's some practical ideas as you study. I wanna give a quick thought on devotionals. I love devotionals, let me be very clear, let me say this explicitly, I am not against devotionals. They're commentaries. Recognize them as such and treat them as such. I love commentaries. I pull out commentaries every single week. But there is no substitute between the real thing. Joe, who's your favorite athlete? Sorry, I threw you an Indians player. Cool. Dude, I know him. I can set up lunch. You could go hang out with him. Or you could hang out with another fan of him. What are you going to choose? You're going to go hang out with the player. Your favorite band, your favorite athlete, your favorite celebrity actor, whoever, author. You want to hang out with them or you want to hang out with somebody who also really likes that person? Both are good, but you want the real deal. You want the, you want the athlete. You want, right, the Beatles are my favorite. I want to go have, hang out with the Beatles rather than just someone who has also listened to their music on repeat for 20 years. 
It's the same thing with devotionals and commentaries in Scripture. Use them. Use them. You get great, wonderful things from people who deeply love God and have made it their life's purpose to know Him and to make Him known. But don't substitute Scripture for devotionals. Because I have yet to see a devotional that's not, you know, one or two verses at the top and then three or four paragraphs, that person's thoughts. Or worse, we reduce it to a tearaway calendar. And you get half a verse and then you get three sentences on it. Here's a great way to use devotionals. I open my devotional, I'm in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, right? The verse at the top of the devotional page is Mark 2, 7. So before I read the devotional, I go and I read the entire chapter of Mark 2. So I get the context of God's Word. I get what's going on. I understand the full picture. And then I go back to the commentary, this other person's thoughts on Mark 2, and I engage with it, okay? Use devotionals. Love them. They're great. Use them in proper perspective to God's Word. A devotional is a side dish. God's Word is the main course. All right? This next part, um, quickly pray with me. Lord, just fill this next part with grace and, and gentleness. Uh, this, yeah, just uh, let this be a, a wholesome conversation, an edifying conversation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to talk about translations. And calm down. I'm not saying our church is moving to, you know, this translation only. I think that's incredibly legalistic and unfair. I'm not here to tell you which is the best translation. There are a lot of good translations out there. There are two, and I'm not even going to call them translations, uh, there are two distortions that really weigh heavily on me. And, and I, I wrestled, this is the part of the message that I wrestled with most before including or not. Um, but what are, where I came to after prayer, after talking to the elders, after talking to Mario, talking to my wife, it, I've been called to shepherd you all. I, I feel a very real weighty burden to protect you all, a protectiveness. And there are, there are two versions of Scripture that are growing in popularity, and actually they're not versions of Scripture. There are two books that are growing in popularity that I'm, I'm really troubled by. Um, it's not my responsibility to protect the reputation of the people behind these projects. It, it's my responsibility to protect you all. And so I want to talk about them because they're problematic. Uh, the first one is the passion. Um, he blatantly calls it a translation. He's lying. And, and there's a word that I'm going to use, and again, I use this word very deliberately. I'm going to use the word heresy. Uh, heresy is something that is deviated from a scriptural standard in a significant way. Heresy is, it's a word that we throw around, we want to make sure we use it and we understand it. Heresy is, this is what God's word said, and I have so distorted it and twisted it and abused it that it is not in line with scripture. Uh, it is my conviction that the Passion Project is heresy. Um, this is how he got it. He tells two stories as to how he got scripture. Jesus appeared to him in a dream in his bedroom and leaned forward and exhaled on him, and as he felt Jesus' breath hit his face, he began to feel these words download into his mind. That's one version. Uh, the other version is an angel took him up to heaven's secret library, and Jesus said, hey, because of who you are, you get to pick one thing from my personal library and take it back down to earth. And he originally wanted to take John chapter 22. Wait a minute, Sam. John only has 21 chapters. Correct. God said scripture is closed. Correct. Not according to Brian Simmons. Jesus has a second or a 22nd chapter that's secret. And 
Brian Simmons wanted to take it and bring it back, and Jesus said, no, not yet, one day. So instead, Brian Simmons settled for the passion and brought that back because he uncovered God's secret love language. Um, yeah, just, I mean, goodness, if you hear that and every alarm bell in your head's not going off, let's talk afterwards. Uh, I mean, just, just examples. I, I, I'm not saying this lightly, right? Like, I really deliberated over this. Um, because he does. He distorts and abuses it. So the word anointed, the word anointed appears anywhere from 10 to 15 times. If you look at the top five or six most reputable, scholarly approved, acceptable translations, the word anointed appears 10 to 15 times in Scripture. It appears 223 times in Brian Simmons's writing. You don't got to be a scholar to say that ain't right. That's an abuse of Scripture. Why would he do that? Well, because here's a direct quote from Brian Simmons. Oh, I don't need... No one has permission to take this clip out of context. This is horrible. Brian Simmons says, anything that can truthfully be said about Jesus can be truthfully said about you. Jesus is God, and as such, he is infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Not a single aspect of that sentence can truthfully be said about any of us. Brian Simmons is a heretic. The Passion Project is heresy. Activate. The idea of activating your spiritual gifts, something that you and I must do, doesn't appear in Scripture at all. Brian Simmons inserts it six different times, talking about, hey, activate your spiritual gifts, do this behavior. So you hear your pastor reading from it, you attend a Bible study and they use the Passion Project, you hear activate my spiritual gift, you're a diligent Christian, you say, I want to do this, I want to be in obedience, I don't know how to activate my spiritual gift, ah, oh, you're in luck. Brian Simmons teaches a course on how to activate, for a fee, of course. Yeah, we have a word for that. That's called a scam artist. The passion is heresy. I will not use it. Please do not use it. I'm not trying to make fun of you. If you use it, I'm really genuinely not trying to belittle you. We'll replace it. I will go and buy you a different version if that's what you use. If it's on your phone, please delete it. it, it, it we got to take it seriously. And the other one's the message. And uh, the message rose in popularity and prominence because it's very just street language. It's very conversational. Um, and again, it's, it's not a translation. Now, Eugene Peterson is at least honest about that. Eugene Peterson, the, the man behind the project, has never once called it a translation. The publishing company he used does. And if you go to a bookstore, it's on the shelf with other translations. And they have no problem with people thinking there's a translation of the Bible. But Eugene Peterson, to his credit, has never claimed that this is a translation. It's a commentary. He calls it that, no problem. Here's my issue. It's a really theologically bad commentary. And it starts with a really theologically upsetting philosophy. See, Eugene Peterson began as a seminary professor and then he transitioned into pastoral ministry. And as a seminary professor, he noted, he was specifically talking about Galatians, but he says, I began to realize that the adults in my class weren't feeling the vitality of Scripture. Totally legit. I get it. It is emotionally painful when I'm talking to people and you realize they just don't care about Scripture, who are claiming to be Christians. They, like, so I'm, I'm tracking with Eugene so far, right? And then he goes on to become a pastor, and he says the same thing. I noticed the same thing. The people in my church didn't feel, they didn't grasp the vitality of Scripture. I get it, that's a heavy weight. And that's where it goes off the rails. Because his conclusion is, the scriptures are the word of God dehydrated. 
And he says, and so I hoped to bring it to life for people. God describes his word as living and active. You're going to describe it as dehydrated, and your conclusion is going to be, I'm the one who can inject life into this? Friends, let me tell you something. If you don't find the word of God appealing, it's not the problem of the word of God. It's a problem with your heart. If the Word of God is not vital to you, I can promise you the issue does not lie with Scripture. The issue lies with your hardened heart. So to conclude, well, people aren't interested in it because it's dehydrated, but I'm the one who can inject vitality and life into it. Uh Uh-uh. I'm out the door. You lost me. And then he takes this fundamentally tragic position And he goes on to, he adds in dogma of baptismal regeneration. He removes sin in multiple places. He won't call specific sins sins. He he completely removes the person of the Holy Spirit almost 50 times. 110 different times he takes the word spirit and he either removes it from Scripture or he inserts it where it doesn't belong. He removes mentions of demonic possession, spiritual warfare, I mean, he changes the person of the Holy Spirit. You can't remove him once from Scripture and claim to have done something worthwhile. It's why I will not use the message. And again, I'm not, I'm not belittling you if you use it. I'm just asking you, come talk to me. We'll replace it. I, I mean, today, we will go and buy you a different version. Delete it off your phone. There are real problems with this, and it will not point you to Jesus because it is not God's word, and it is not truth. And that's what this boils down to, that the church must be a pillar of truth. And this is, again, according to God's word. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What is the household of God? Which is the church of the living God. Church, ecclesia, the people, the gathering, the body of believers. We are the household of God. What are we called to be? A pillar and buttress of the truth. What did Jesus say in John 17? Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The church must be defined by Scripture, dependent on Scripture, committed to Scripture, and uphold Scripture at all costs. Forget popularity. Forget ease. Forget making people comfortable. We have an obligation to a holy God to stand for and by and upon His Scripture. And if we remove that, we are dead in the water. And in order for the church, the gathering, the ecclesia, to be a pillar of truth, it will require the individual members to be pillars of truth, to be pillars of Scripture. So I am asking you if together we will pursue being those individual believers that corporately we may be that church that is a pillar of truth. We're going we're gonna to wrap up uh, just with some prayer. And we're going to have some quiet time. And then after a little bit of quiet time, uh, one of our elders will come up and dismiss. I apologize. I want a little, I get fired up about this stuff. This stuff matters. Uh, But please join me in prayer. And let's just have quiet time. 
Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the sanctification of it. And so, Lord, we come to it humbly submitting ourselves to it. Pierce us, Lord. Cut through, divide soul from spirit, discern our hearts, reveal where we need to be transformed by you. And Lord, we submit to your transforming power. Father, as we spend a few moments now just in silence before your throne, speak to us. Call to mind scripture. Show us where we need to be transformed by you. Forgive us for where we have fallen short. We repent and we seek your face and your will in all of this. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.